The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me as we read Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house as we walked together in the throng. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father God, what we need at this moment and in every moment is to see you as you truly are. Not as our traditions tell us. Not as our minds have conceived. But as you really are as you've revealed yourself to us in your holy word. So Father, in the moments to come, my prayer for each and every one of these people is that you would glorify yourself by showing them who you really are. That you would wash away any preconceived notions, that you would tear down any walls, that you would reveal to all of us my heart, and theirs, who you truly are. Father, we trust you to do this. Because we ask it in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Recognizing that it is only through him that we may ever rightly approach you. So, Father, in his name we ask these things. Amen. So during our time together on the last Lord's Day, we marveled together at a picture of true spiritual worship that God revealed to us there in the beginnings of the 14th chapter of Mark's gospel. This woman had tasted and seen that which was best. And in response to this, she was doing what so many other professing Christians will not. Having experienced true pleasures at the feet of Jesus Christ, she refused to settle for anything else. What we witnessed in this picture was nothing more than a woman pursuing, charging hard after that which was best, true delights in Jesus Christ. And she she gave expression to the satisfaction that she found in him. Everyone that was there saw him as glorious. She was putting his glory on display for everyone there within that room. This is worship. And as breathtaking as that picture is, it becomes all the more arresting when seen in context. As we discussed last week, God chose to insert this story for us right here in the middle of, sandwich of, uh, middle of a sandwich of sorts. Not necessarily because this dinner party immediately comes after the story that precedes it or because it goes before the story that follows. 
but because God's goal in this was theological and not necessarily chronological. That the brilliance of this moment, the radiance of this woman's worship, it could only best be seen in contrast to the story we study this morning. And so as my goal for us last week was to see this beautiful picture of true and sincere and spiritual worship in the life of this woman, my goal for us this morning is not just to see the depravity in a man called Judas, but to examine our own hearts for any root of similar sin. But more importantly than that, that we would rightly see the God of the universe who is exercising his providence over all of it. So I ask you please to return to your feet. We're in Mark's gospel yet again, the 14th chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 2 and then skip down to 10. This is the word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And then we see the beautiful picture of the woman in her worship, anointing Jesus with oil, preparing him for his burial. And then verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, yet again, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and nothing more. Carve away all that does not belong. Refine us by your fire. Help us to think your thoughts, to see your images, and to rightly respond. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So every year at Passover, Jerusalem would have swelled to beyond capacity. Pilgrims from all over were coming into the city walls in order to celebrate these feasts. Now we get varying accounts as to just how big the crowd was in the year that Jesus died. But by every account, it was truly massive. The city was packed. And scripture makes quite clear that there was a certain buzz in the air that previous years didn't have because word of Jesus had traveled far and wide. People had heard about his ability to heal the sick. They had heard about his ability to raise the dead. They had heard about his ability to cast demons out from men that were oppressed. Add to this the incredible power and authority in his teaching. No one spoke like this. And so the whole city was filled with anticipation. What do you think? Could he truly be Messiah? Is this Jesus going to finally be the one to lead us in rebellion against the Romans who rule over God's people? Now, not everyone shared the crowd's enthusiasm. That's why we read that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So we see here the familiar players, the chief priests, the scribes. Matthew tells us that the elders were there too. Essentially, every power group within Israel, the religious leaders, the political leaders, the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin, nearly everyone that had risen to any position of power within Israel, whether by bloodlines or by sheer matter of force, hated Jesus. They gathered against him, not merely because they resented the crowds that he drew, not merely because they hated the word that he teached, but because he attacked the very system that held them up. The laws, the ordinances, the commands that these men piled onto the backs of the sincere worshipers of Yahweh, he chopped at the very root, taking the whole thing down. He looked these religious leaders in the eye and he saw straight into their soul. He told them, watch out for these men, for they are blinded by sin, and if you follow them, they will lead you straight into the pit of hell. 
Add to that the fact that he had cleansed the temple, that he had literally, physically whipped the money changers and other men that sought to get rich off the backs of those that again sought to worship God. Who did this man from Galilee think he was? He didn't have any pedigree. He didn't follow after any of the great rabbis. By what authority do you do these things? And so they sought to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now you'll notice they've already determined the guilt and the punishment. These men weren't looking for an inquiry. They weren't looking for a fair trial. They had already determined Jesus is guilty and Jesus must die. Now you see men like this, men who are blinded by sin, men whose hearts are hardened like this, their desire is not for the truth. They don't want to come to the truth because it's by that truth that they might be confronted. By that truth, they may be forced to change the patterns of their lives, their preconceived notions. Truly, these men hated the light and loved the darkness because their ways were evil. And so they had already determined that Jesus must die. But why in stealth? Well, the scripture tells us, verse 2, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You see, Jesus had these guys in a really bad spot. His popularity grew by the day. People were coming from all over day after day during this week into the temple complex to hear Jesus teach. They wanted to hear the words of this authoritative teacher. He didn't teach like the scribes. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And they were fearful. They were fearful that they were, he was going to tear down this system that they had built. They were also fearful that there would be an uprising of some sort. You see, they couldn't arrest him in broad daylight. If they were to come against Jesus, they were afraid that there would be a ruckus. There would be an uprising, maybe even a riot. And if there's one thing that the Romans will not tolerate, it's a disturbance. And so they knew that if we seek to arrest him too quickly, we're going to trigger this very thing that we don't want to happen. The Romans will come in and they will squash it all. Perhaps everyone would die in such an event. That's why Cephas says to the people, or Caiaphas, excuse me, in John 1.1, 1, 1, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Why should we all die? Jesus is going to die anyway. Shouldn't he die and spare the nation? And so they were seeking an opportunity to arrest and kill Jesus in stealth. They would have to wait some two weeks if they were going to do this until all the crowds from the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread had dissipated until Jerusalem went back to its normal population. Then we skip down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to to betray him to them. Now, Judas is a fairly common name. Jesus had a brother named Judas. Another of the apostles went by the name of Judas. And so they tell us that this is Judas Iscariot. We don't know exactly what that name means, but perhaps it's a nod to his hometown. Perhaps this is Judas from a place called Kerioth in Judea. If that's the case, then he's the lone outsider. He's the only apostle that is not from the northern region of Galilee where the rest of these men came from. But wherever he came from, he ended up with Jesus an apostle, one of the 12, not just a disciple, but one of the 12. You see, a disciple is a follower. They're good disciples, they're bad disciples. They're sincere disciples and they're false disciples. There are those disciples that will continue on with Jesus Christ until the very end and there's those that will go away whenever the demands of following Jesus become too much. But a disciple is a follower. Everyone, every one of us that count ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, we are disciples. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But then there were apostles. And of course the apostles are disciples. They were followers of Jesus. But they were something else. They were set apart. They were called to him, and then they were sent out with his authority. That's what we read about in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. 
Jesus went up onto the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This was an official office with given authority. There are no more apostles today, but Judas was an apostle. He had been with Jesus, he had heard his teaching, he had seen his works, and then at the appointed time, he was sent out by the authority of Jesus to do the very same kind of works that he had done. We see this in when the sending out of the 12 when they go out two by two, going out to do the kinds of work that Jesus did. We see this in Mark 6, and we read about the outcome in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Judas was one of these 12, casting out demons himself healing people himself, proclaiming the gospel himself, all in the authority of Jesus Christ who sent him. It does not say that the 11 had fantastic success and Judas got in the way. It doesn't say that the 11 did exactly what Jesus sent them to do and Judas wandered off and did his own thing. Judas was one of the 12. He was there doing these works, acting in these ways. And now he was here with the chief priests and the apostles. He came to them. You'll notice that the religious leaders, they didn't approach Judas. They surely thought that that would have been futile. What hope could these men possibly had of leading away someone who was a follower of Jesus Christ? Not just a follower, but an apostle. One of the 12. What hope would they have of turning one of them against him? Especially now, when Jesus' popularity was at an all-time high. They had surely thought, no, this won't work. We're going to have to figure something else out. Some other way to arrest him in stealth. And that's what this meeting was all about. But then, here comes Judas. He comes to them. This was Judas' idea. It was his desire. He initiates the conversation. He wasn't forced. They didn't capture him. They didn't blackmail him. He walks straight through the door. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. These men rejoiced. What a gift. One of the 12 came to them. He wanted this. He decided in his heart, I am going to betray Jesus. So Judas walks into their meeting. He knows who they are. He knows how badly they want to get Jesus. He walks into their meeting, and then Matthew records for us his very first words. What will you give me if I deliver Jesus to you? These men were glad. They were happy. They couldn't arrest Jesus in the middle of the day. It would have caused an uproar. They couldn't just snatch him up in the middle of the crowd. They would have never stood for that. But they also had no way of tracking everywhere that he went. They had no way of knowing exactly where he went at nighttime unless someone who was with him, unless one of his inner circle, unless someone that went with Jesus every night as he retired out of the city and over the Mount of Olives, unless one of them was willing to escort them, to take them to where Jesus was. And so when G uh, Judas walks in, you better believe these men were glad. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. Matthew, again, is helpful here because he tells us exactly how much money, but you already know. It's 30 pieces of silver. By most accounts, that's something like 120 denarii. Exodus 21 tells us that that's the price of a slave. That for what amounts to four months' wages for an average laborer, Judas sought to sell out the Son of God, and they were thrilled to pay it. And from that moment forward, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now do you see why God used Mark to sandwich the picture of beautiful worship in the middle of this? Do you see the contrast that's on display you see this woman, she takes a small fortune, a vat of oil that's worth a full year's wages, and she breaks the bottle because she's pouring it all. 
She's using it all. She's not holding back one single drop for herself. Her whole life has been building towards this one moment. This opportunity to express true love and devotion. This absolute extravagance poured out on the head and the feet of Jesus Christ who she loves. Remember we read that the whole room was filled with the fragrance. Jesus praised the woman and he said, Daughter, what you have done for me is a beautiful thing. And everywhere that the gospel is proclaimed, people will tell of what you have done on this day. This woman's whole life would be defined by this. And now here's this one. In such darkness, this one that had been with Jesus, by every single outward appearance, a true disciple, an empowered apostle, and yet he would turn like this. We have to imagine his intentions were good in the beginning. And he not only saw the power of Jesus, he experienced it in himself, going out and preaching and healing and casting out demons in his name. And then for a fraction of what the woman gave, for the price of a, sa- of a slave, she betrayed, he betrayed this one who he called friend. Whatever else Judas did, whatever else Judas was in his whole life, he would be defined by this. Everywhere that the apostles are listed, isn't it always Judas last? And isn't it always Judas who became the traitor? Judas who would betray Jesus. His whole life summed up in this sentence, he is the one who betrayed Jesus in the darkness of night. This woman gave everything to glorify Jesus in public, and this man settled for a few thousand bucks to betray him in secret. Could there be any greater contrast? But how does it happen? How can you be with Jesus like this? How can you experience his power? How can you hear his teaching? How can you sleep with him under the stars? How can you hug his neck? How can you see and witness and experience all of this and then betray him? What could drive Judas to a place like this? As you might imagine, there's no shortage of theories about what happened. Some people say that Judas' last name, that that the the name is scary that points to the fact that he was a secret Jewish assassin of the group of the Sycharai. And that he was disenchanted because Jesus wasn't going to lead them in the rebellion against Rome. Other people say that maybe he had some kind of theological disagreement with Jesus. But dear friends, I don't think we need to make it all that deep. Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas loved money. That really is it. Scripture makes clear all throughout Judas' life, he was the treasurer of the group. Whatever money the group had, it went into Judas' hand for safekeeping. You remember that when the woman expressed her love and her satisfaction for Jesus in this extravagant way, it was Judas who was the loudest. It was the Judas who protested, it was Judas who protested first and said, what have you wasted it for? What are you doing? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. And yet we know very clearly from John's gospel that these were not sincere words. This was not a real objection. That Judas said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I really do think it is that simple. The love of money. Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. I asked you last week, what is Jesus worth to you? To the poor widow woman? To Mary? Jesus was worth more than everything. To Judas? Jesus was worth less than the price of a slave. What is Jesus worth to you? When Judas recognized that his opportunities to get rich, to gain money for himself by following after Jesus were running out, he decided, I'm going to cash in now. 
I'm going to put all my chips in now and get whatever I can while the getting's good. That's why the first thing he said to the council when he walked in is, what will you give me for Jesus? And they were glad. They couldn't believe he settled for so little. And we don't need to overthink Judas' motives. Paul was writing to the young pastor called Timothy, and he warned him very sternly against this. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The desire to be rich, the desire for money, it's like a snare. It's like a trap. It's waiting to snatch you up. It's like a spring just waiting to attack. This is the desire to be rich. Those who desire to be rich like this, they fall into temptation. There's a senselessness to their life. Their whole life's plunged into destruction. The desire to be rich, it leads to damnation. How's that for the opposite of the American dream? And I promise you I've been guilty. I promise you I've chased after this. But Paul went on in his letter, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. It's a story as old as time, men chasing after money. It's not that money itself is evil. Money's just an opportunity. It's an opportunity to honor God or to celebrate self. But it's the love of money, to be drawn to it, to have the whole direction of your life, all of your priorities set by money. That's the problem. That's the thing that ensnares. We find men that rather than giving generously and joyfully as an act of worship, they hoard with the desire to spend on themselves. That rather than trusting God for all their provision, rather than finding their true satisfaction in Jesus Christ, they find comfort and false security in money. Dear friends, do you have a heart that loves money? And before you say no, let me ask you a couple of other questions. Help you to examine yourself. Does your mood fluctuate with your bank account? Is your sense of security tied to how much cash you can get your hands on? Do you find yourself failing to do things that you believe God wants you to do because the cost is too high? Is there any chance that you have a job which restricts your ability to serve God, to gather with his people, to worship him, to come into this place the way God designed you to come into this place, but you refuse to leave it because it offers you too luxurious a lifestyle? Do you fantasize about what you would do with more money, and is that fantasy always about you and making sure that other people know how much money you have? Do you often find yourself anxious about money? And then perhaps the most telling of all, what does your giving look like? It's been two months since we talked about the poor widow's gift. That's eight weeks. I challenged you pretty hard. I have to imagine that some of you were convicted for a moment. But did you let that conviction pass? Did you let that pinprick of the Holy Spirit, as he, he charged you in that moment, as you looked me in the eye and you heard me pleading to you from the word of God, as you heard me pleading for you to fight for pure joy, for fight for, to fight for what really satisfies. Did you allow that to waste away once you got out there into the world? Did the enemy whisper lies into your ears? Did you set out of this place to do something radical and then you determine, no, I'm only gonna do that which the world deems reasonable? If someone were to look at your bank account or your giving statement, would they find a heart like Judas or like the woman? Would they, fight, would they find someone seeking to give everything that they have and everything that they are 
to find true satisfaction and joy in Jesus Christ and to give expression to that in the act of worship through their giving? Or are you like Judas, a man so filled with love and concern for self that there's not a lot of room for Jesus, that he will get whatever is left over and nothing more? Christian, be warned. Not you, Christian, all Christians, but also you, Christian, be warned. The love of money is a powerful and evil desire. The desire for riches will drag you straight to the pits of hell. You may follow Jesus Christ with your lips and with much of your life all the days you walk and in the end find that your heart belonged to another, namely money. Does your heart look like the woman or does it look like Judas? I plead with you to examine your heart. I plead with you to be real with yourself. And I plead to you to not let this moment of conviction pass. So is that it then? Is it really that simple? The son of God sold out for the price of a slave. The son of God sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Is that really it? No other explanation, no other cause. No. We can't stop there. Because you see, if we look at the parallel to this passage in Luke 22, we read these words. Luke 22, 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. Satan entered into Judas. Now, if you go to the Last Supper, John 13, you're going to find these words. John 13, beginning in verse 2. During the supper, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, that Simon's son, to betray Jesus. Jesus then washes the disciples' feet. He serves the supper, and he predicts Judas' betrayal. He says, the one to whom I give this morsel of bread after I dip it in my bowl, that's the one that's going to betray me. He hands Judas the bread. John 12, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 27. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Satan tempted and then entered into Judas, leading him to do this thing, to betray Jesus. So can Judas then say, the devil made me do it? No, sir. No, sir. This was what Judas sincerely wanted. This was a sincere desire of Judas Iscariot. It began with his love of money. His love of money that surpassed his commitment to Jesus Christ. His love of money that caused him to snap at Mary while she sought to give this extravagant gift of worship to Jesus. This love of money that's caused Judas Iscariot to steal from the purse long before this day ever came. You got to see that this sin, just like every other, it originated from the cold, black heart of Judas. If this is said of all sins, James 1, beginning in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. No one made Judas do anything he didn't want to do. You've got to see this, church. We can get all caught up in the morbid details. Was Judas possessed? Did Satan merely influence him or was it something in between we aren't told we don't need to know apparently that's not the main thing but what you must know is this this was not an instance of satan taking control of some poor innocent soul that's not the way these things work firstly there's no such thing as a poor innocent soul but secondly satan jumps in and capitalizes where sin reigns what satan found in judas iscariot was a willing party was a willing participant You'll notice that Satan tempted Jesus, no success. 
Satan attacked Job, no sin. And yet in this man called Judas, this man who loved money more than he loved God, he was joyful and glad to follow along with Satan's schemes. Did Satan perhaps bring down some restrictions or some, some pause that Judas had to go this far to betraying Jesus? Maybe. Did Satan convince Judas that Jesus' usefulness to him had somehow worn out? Maybe. We don't know. We're not told. But you must see this, that long before Satan entered into Judas, whatever that means, long before Satan entered into Judas, Judas was a son of the devil. Jesus says this very plainly. Go back to the feeding of the 5,000. In John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, plain as day, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Despite three years of being with Jesus Christ, despite three years under the teaching of the most brilliant gospel preacher in the history of the world, despite being face-to-face with the Son of God, Judas was a devil, and he would be until the very end. But you must listen to me very, very closely. As spectacular as Judas' sin is, the root, the spirit of this grotesque act of evil, it lives and reigns in the hearts of every single non-believer we read this very plainly in Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 1 and you and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air that's Satan the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Please pay attention. I'm going to give you a lesson in biblical anthropology. God made Adam good and sinless. Adam quickly ruined that. Tempted by Satan, he rebelled. And as our representative, he dragged all the rest of us into the sin into this rebellion as our representative we were all born into sin and as soon as we were able we joined him gladly in the rebellion as soon as we were capable we joined him in his fight against God and as a result of this the result of sin it is death man in his natural state as he is born into this world as he is born in Adam separate from Christ he is dead not just broken not just sick not just unbalanced dead spiritually completely totally dead this is the state of everyone unless and until they are born again by work of the holy spirit that's why he says here you were dead he's talking to believers here he's saying this is who everyone was this is who you were before you came to trust in jesus christ by work of his spirit dead completely unable to know and please and walk with and honor god only able to walk according to the course of this world you see there's a pattern there's a path There's a course that all of this world is on, that all of mankind is on, but this path isn't random. You see that? This isn't coincidental. It isn't accidental. He says that it is led by the prince of the power of the air. That is the first rebel. That is Satan. That is the adversary. That is the devil. He leads the way. He led the way to rebellion in the Garden of Eden. He continues to lead the way today. And so fallen men, Paul calls them sons of disobedience. Their whole life summed up by this, you are disobedient to God. You are sons of disobedience. Even those that give no thought to God, even those that know nothing of his law, sons of disobedient, of disobedience, excuse me. And it is by their nature that they are children of wrath, just like all the rest of mankind. 
And in this, John writes in his first letter, 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. The whole world is under the influence, under the power, under the working of Satan as he leads them along this path, this path that is not coincidental. And yet, listen to what else Paul says. We all once lived there in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. Yes, Satan led the way. Yes, Satan has some power. And yet we were only doing what our hearts desired. We were following after the passions of our flesh. We were following after the desires of our minds. We were following after that which looked right to our own eyes. So people talk about free will, free will, free will. Yes, here is your free will. God has allowed you to chase after that which you most want. God has allowed you to the freedom to pursue that which seems best to you. You aren't a robot. You aren't acting contrary to your nature. You aren't acting contrary to your will. You aren't acting contrary to your desires. You wanted sin. You wanted rebellion. You wanted the fleshly things. You wanted money and sex and power and pride and reputation and all the rest. You really wanted these things just like the Sanhedrin really wanted to kill Jesus, just like Judas really wanted money. Men always want these things, and that's what their heart will go to. You move towards that which you most desire all the while doing the work of Satan. All the while following after the prince of the power of the air and his spirit is at work in all of this. Doing what he desires, joining him in his rebellion against God. This is why Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So Satan was at work. Satan's at work today in the whole world. Satan was at work in the lives of the religious leaders. Satan in some specific and particular way was in the, working in the life of Judas. And yet natural man, he gladly follows along. He is merely capitalizing on that which you want to do, on that which your heart leads you to do. It was their will to do these things. And their will aligned with Satan's will. They had the same heart, so much so that Jesus calls them sons of the devil. So is that it then? So is what we're seeing here in this story, Judas' betrayal, Jesus' crucifixion, is this nothing more than a story of Satan, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, leading his people, his sons, those who love the things that he does and joyfully does them according to their will, was this merely him leading them as they overcame the authority of God and his people? Was this just one of those instances where Satan and his people got the overhand, upper hand and thwarted the power of God? two friends you see we can't stop there either while the Sanhedrin they were acting in accordance with their sincere desires and while Judas was acting in accordance with his sincere desires and while all of them were acting in accordance with the will of Satan above and beyond superintending governing the entire thing is the God of the universe none of this none of this happens unless he wills it let me go beyond this every single thing that happens happens because God has predestined it to occur this is key Annie said she had no clue why I talked about God's sovereignty in the middle of Mark 14 because it is key for our understanding of all of what comes next frankly it's key in our understanding of all of scripture but if we view Passion Week as merely some things that men did and in God's response to the thing those men did, you don't have a gospel. You don't have God so loving the world that he gives his only begotten son. You don't have the son of God saying that I freely lay down my life that I may take it up again. You have God and his son making lemonade out of lemons. 
You've got some sovereign men doing some sovereign things and then God trying to clean up the mess. Dear friends, you must see before we go through the rest of this week, you must see God's rule, his power, his authority, his absolute sovereign on full display in even this, the most heinous act in the history of the world. Now, I use that word a lot, sovereignty, but I've never taken the time to slow down and define it for you. Sovereign is both the authority, that is the right to do whatever you want, and the power to make it happen. If someone else has either the power or the authority to stop you from doing what you want, you are not, by definition, truly sovereign. Now, God, of course, as the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise creator of the universe, he is truly and supremely sovereign. No one has the authority or the power to prevent God from doing anything that he wants. Scripture makes this clear. I'm going to put all these scriptures up here because here's the way this is going to work. There are going to be many of you in this room that you believe that I've arrived at this place according to some system. Because these are the thoughts that someone else told me to have. You've got to see that this is the word of God. You've got to see that I arrived here because God's word demands that I believe it. And that's my prayer for you. I need you to know that was my prayer for you before I came out here. That I trembled before I stepped into this pulpit. I trembled in the first hour. I'm not any more comfortable this hour. Because I'm heading into some very, very deep waters. Some waters that men have swam in. Men much more holy than me, much smarter than me, much more faithful than me. They have swam in for 2,000 years and not a one of them have been able to make perfect sense of this. So please don't understand me to be saying that I'm the first. Please don't understand me to be saying that you're stupid if you can't understand this. You're a bad person because you cannot understand this. But dear friends, scripture demands that we talk about this. It screams out from every last page. So look with me. Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9. For I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. So people might hit pause there and go, yeah, well, God sees everything. God's just seeing the future. He can see the beginning. He can see the end. God just sees everything. Okay, but don't stop there because he goes on to say, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. This is more than just an observance. This is more than just a Someone telling the future, he says, my will will come to pass. Job 42, beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So even amongst those who know very little about the Bible, most everyone out there walking around the street, they know that this is one of the most fundamental things about God, isn't it? God has the power and the right to do whatever he wants in his creation. Everyone knows this. I've yet to meet a Christian that would say, oh, no, I, I disagree with that statement. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say you can't be truly Christian if you disagree with that statement. If you believe that God's got to check with someone else for permission to do something, or you believe that someone is out there that can restrict the power of God to do whatever he wants, you can't be truly Christian. Almost everyone agrees with that. But there is a massive difference between saying that God has the right and the ability to do something and saying that he actually does it. Everyone generally agrees that God is supremely sovereign, that he can do whatever he wants. They will all generally confess in the absolute sovereignty of God. But the question is, to what degree does he actually exert that sovereignty? Let me put it another way. How much control does God choose to exercise in his creation? That's the question. That's what makes men tremble. Church, I submit to you today 
And I tend to show you very clearly in Scripture that there is absolutely nothing that happens outside of the will and sovereign control of God. That God has given man the very real right and ability to make real choices with real consequences. Man truly has the freedom to pursue that which he most desires. Scripture makes this clear. If this wasn't the case, then God would not hold men accountable for their decisions. God would not call men to an account for the choices they make in this lifetime if they weren't real choices with real consequences. That's the truth. Scripture says it. That we are not puppets. We are not robots. That man always moves towards that which he wills. And yet, it is God according to his absolute sovereignty, who is unchangeably ordained, predestined, determined, literally everything that happens in this world. And what can only be called a mystery, God decrees everything that will happen. Nothing happens outside his will, while at the very same time, he works through the real and genuine and accountable choices that men make. That God is the ultimate and the first and the primary cause of everything. Again, I say nothing happens outside of his will. Now listen, I know how uncomfortable that already makes some of you, and we haven't even got there yet. I know how many of you immediately put up a wall and you just get stiff when you hear someone speaking in these kind of absolute terms. You can't speak in absolute terms like this about anyone but God. But dear friends, I'm telling you that once you get this, once you understand that God is truly sovereign, ordaining even this, the most heinous act in the history of the world, you will recognize that this is not just about theology. This is not just to prove some debate. This is not just for men in ivory towers. That there is nothing more practical in all the world than this. And pieces will start to come together. Things that didn't make sense before will start to make sense in this moment. But if you don't, if you don't take the time to grasp this, and you notice I said grasp and not understand. But if you don't take the time to hear and pray and wrestle with and ultimately believe it because God says it in his word, you will always have a hole in your theology. There will always be big sections of scripture that you've got to either ignore or talk your way around. But once you get to this place to see what God has so clearly revealed in his word, things get real good real quick. You start to see it everywhere. You'll recognize that there's nothing more practical and there's nothing more comforting than this reality, the assurance that God is fundamentally and absolutely and decisively sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his will or his absolute control. So again, I, I know that time is fairly short, but I've, I've got a lot of texts that I've got to show you because again, you've got to recognize this isn't my words. I want less of my commentary and more of the word of God. And there are going to be some of you that are going to just disagree, just fundamentally disagree. And that's fine. There's room for this. My door is always open. I plead with you to come to me. So many people think they know what I'm preaching, and that's probably the problem. I don't accurately say what I mean to say, so I'm asking you to come to me and let me explain myself. Let me help you to wrestle with these things. But dear friends, here's my challenge to you. Don't just tell me that you disagree with what I think God's saying here. You tell me what he's saying. You've got to deal with these texts. You've got to deal with these verses. You can't just whitewash them. You can't just eliminate them. So before you just say, I don't believe what that guy says is true, then tell me what you believe God is revealing about himself here as we work through these texts. I ask you to read there. I ask you to make notes and go back, look in your own Bible to make sure maybe my translation isn't wrong somehow. Make sure I haven't added faulty commentary to what God has said in his word. I need you to wrestle with this on your own. Do not believe me. I'm talking about the fundamental way in which God relates to his universe. You can't afford to just listen to a dude because he's got a big wooden pulpit to stand behind. 
You've got to determine, is this what God really says in his word? Is this who God really is? Is this how God really reacts with his universe? Because there's going to be a whole lot of people out there that have nicer pulpits, bigger churches, prettier faces, louder voices, and they're going to tell you the exact opposite. So you've got to determine what you believe. So how much control does God choose to exercise on his creation? Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, we don't use that kind of phraseology often, the casting of the lot, but today we would use something like the rolling of a dice or a flipping of a coin. It was a way that men in the ancient Near East made decisions. They would, today we call this luck or we call it chance or we call it random. And yet what God is saying is, no, in the casting of the lot, in the rolling of the dice, in the flipping of the coin, you think these things are random, but you must recognize that I'm the one making the decision. I'm determining how the dice will land. I'm determining how the coin will come up. I'm determining what the lots will say. Psalm 139, 135, excuse me, beginning in verse 6. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. All of these things that we chalk up to Mother Nature, all these things that we chalk up to Lady, Lady Luck, it is all the hand of God. It rains when God says it will rain. Don't you see this throughout Scripture? Lightning comes when God says there will be lightning. Don't you see this throughout Scripture? The wind comes from the storehouses of God. Don't you see this throughout Scripture? Go to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about his love even for his enemies as he causes the sun to rise. Who causes the sun to rise? Isn't that God? Hasn't he caused it to stand still before? God is sovereign over all of this. But okay, that, that's all inanimate objects, right? Dice and clouds and rain and the sun and the moon and the stars. What about living things? Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. A sparrow, a seemingly worthless bird. Not one of them falls to the ground and dies. I can hardly keep up with my three kids. Henderson sure can't keep up with his six kids. And the God of the universe says, I know where every single sparrow is and not a one of them falls to the ground unless I ordain it. Unless I decree it. Unless it happens according to my will. Do you see the picture? You see, there are many people that are practical deists. That's with a D. They don't use that term. But they see God like a watchmaker and this world like a watch. And it's a magnificent watch. It's a beautiful watch. It's an intricate watch. No one else in the whole world can make a watch like this. And then God winds up the watch and he steps back and just lets it play out. Oh, I'm not going to interject. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to demand that anything particular happens. I'm just going to see how this thing plays out. But he can't be bothered to mess with things like birds, like lightning, like rain, like the hairs on your head, like the tears that you cry, like the rolling of dice. But scripture tells you otherwise. Okay, that's dice and that's birds. What about something bigger? Acts 17, beginning in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is nations. How many times throughout scripture do you see that it is God who ordains? It is God who determines when and when, when and where nations will rise and how they will fall. That's the whole story of Daniel, isn't it? And so we go to Daniel 2 and we read this. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets them up. Okay, fair enough. So God determines the boundaries of nations. He determines the, determines the outcome of elections. He determines the outcomes of wars. Dear friends, not just the outcome of wars, when and where and how every soldier will fall. What bullet will miss and what bullet will strike a man's heart? 
But okay, this doesn't speak to the will of man because man makes decisions in his heart, doesn't he? Scripture makes very clear all throughout that it's the heart of man that drives him to do the things he does, his will. He sees things, he thinks about things, his mind and his heart working together to drive him towards that which he delights in. What about that? What about the heart of man? Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The heart of a king. If there's ever been a sovereign man, isn't it a king? Is it, there ever been a man that had the power and the authority to do whatever he wanted in his little kingdom? Isn't it a king? Nobody tells the king what to do. He didn't have to get permission from anyone what to do. And yet it says that his heart, even his heart, it is like a stream of water in the hands of God. He turns it wherever he will. Things got real personal real quick, didn't they? People are real comfortable with God messing with his creation. But don't touch my heart. Does this just refer to the kings of Israel? Is this just the kings that obey the word of God? Is this just the kings that know the law of God? What about pagan kings? I'm glad you asked. Ezra 6, beginning in verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. And for the, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. God turned the heart of the king of Assyria to be favorable towards his people for his purposes for the building of his house what about the opposite way that's turning towards good that's turning towards favor does God ever turn people's heart the opposite direction why yes go read through Psalm 105 the 105th Psalm is just a radiant picture of God's absolute sovereignty but we read these words Psalm 105 25 talking about the people of Egypt he that is God turned their hearts to hate his people and to deal craftily with his servants. God turned the hearts of the people of Egypt to deal craftily, to mistreat his people and to hate them. The hearts of kings, all kings, not just Christian kings, not just God-fearing kings, pagan kings, kings that bow at the feet of Jesus and kings that spurn his name. All kings are going to be built, bent, their hearts directed towards God's decree that they might will, that they might sincerely to desire to do that which he's ordained. Never once committing violence against their will. Never once forcing anybody to do anything they don't want to do. Okay, that's kings. What about ordinary people? Like does God just interject himself at important moments in time? Does he only, does he only kind of reach down and pick up certain pieces when they fall over on the chessboard because of he's playing out his plan for redemptive history? No. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, we see the heart of man. It's the heart of man by which he plans his ways. God has allowed man to make real decisions. I'm going to say this as many times as I can because inevitably there's going to be somebody that walks out of here that says, that man seeks to make me in a robot. That man says I'm nothing but a puppet. Dear friends, you make real decisions. That's why God says you're going to give an account for every decision you make. You make real decisions with real consequences in real time based on what your mind and your eyes and your heart sincerely desire, but it is God who superintends and ordains and predestines and governs all of it. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the, man, in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So there's some people that have this picture, well, 
But what this means is that everybody just runs around like a bunch of wild dogs, but God's just going to bring it all back together at the end. Like he's determined where you're headed, and you kind of just get there whatever way you want to. It's the, it's the cruise ship analogy. You're on a cruise ship, and you determine whether you're going to go eat. You determine whether you're going to go dance. You determine whether you're going to watch a show. But ultimately, that thing's going to land in the right port. And that's the picture that some people have with regards to the sovereignty of God. Like God is, is a dad in a sitcom. He's going to come in. The 30 minutes are almost up, so you know that he's going to show up and make everything right before the end. We've got a 30-minute episode here. But difference, you must see how this is not it. This isn't it at all. Go to James. Go to James's letter. What he says there is that a man might say in his heart, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to this town and do this business and make this money. He says, no, dear friend, your life is but a vapor. What you should say, the only right thing that you can say is that if the Lord wills, we will live. Don't tell me you're sovereign over your life. You can't add one second to it. Don't tell me what you're going to do tomorrow. God determines you don't live one second longer than he has decreed. One second longer than he's determined. People say, well, I don't like the idea of a God that's so, so sovereign, a God that so interjects himself into my life. How about determining the day you're going to die? Is that a little personal? Is that a little controlling? You will not live one nanosecond longer than God has decreed. If the Lord wills, we will live. But it's not just you live. And if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. You understanding what I'm telling you here? Nothing, absolutely nothing happens outside of the will and sovereign control of God. We see it in the life of another very powerful king, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He got too big for his britches, and he started looking around at the kingdom and said, look at this kingdom that I've built. And God said, oh, yeah, why don't I make you into a donkey with long fingernails? And he was out in the field, and his hair grew long, and there was dew on his back, and he was eating grass. And eventually, once his mind was restored, once he came to his senses, because this is where a right mind goes. This is where a man with proper senses goes. He cries out this, Praising God for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is Daniel 4. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All throughout Paul's letter, there's some really difficult questions asked. Some really difficult topics asked in his letter to the Romans. And yet the most poignant answer that he gives in the whole letter is this. Who are you to answer back to God? Who are you, man, to think that you can ask God and demand answers of him for what he's done and why he's done it? Listen, dear friends, I don't know how God does everything that he does. I don't know all the secondary causes. I'm not in the secondary cause business. That's above my pay grade. I don't know the things God does by nature. I don't know the things that God does by permission. I don't know the things that God brings to pass. I don't know how God does any of what he does, but I'm telling you that everything, everything, everything that happens in this world happens only because the God of the universe has decreed that it will happen. If he's decreed, it won't. It won't. If he's decreed, it will. It will. Your shoelaces are tied this morning because God decreed it to be so. You're wearing the color shirt you're wearing because God decreed it to be so. Again, I say, please understand, this is not the God of the universe just interjecting himself at specific moments. This is not the God of the universe just saying, well, these people seem to really need my help right here. It's in everything, the casting of lots, the rising of kings, the setting of plans, the doing of business, the hearts 
of man. Nothing happens outside the sovereign will and control of God. Speaking about his son, God makes the most absolute statement in this regard and it's beginning, beginning to the letter of the Ephesians, Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. I want you to see this because what Paul is calling these people to do is to find hope in the promises of God. He's saying, listen, you have got a royal inheritance, an inheritance that will not waste away, that will not be lost, that will not perish, that will not be squandered. You've got an inheritance that is guaranteed to be there. You suffer through this life. You struggle through this life. You continue to serve God with the promise that he has stored up an inheritance for you in heaven, that nothing's going to happen to it. And here's how he says that we can have that hope. Because you have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. All things, all things, all things, God works all things according to his plans, his purposes, his will. All things, and I can tell you why. I can't tell you all the secondary causes, but I can tell you the primary, to the praise of his glorious grace. All things to the grace of God. And all things to our good. That's why Paul's also able to say in Romans 8 that he's working all things, actively working all things for all good and his glory. Again, this isn't just taking a bunch of random events and cobbling them together at all times because you've got to see the way this thing plays out. There's some people, I myself have thought this at times, there's some people, again, that have this sitcom picture that we're going to make a bunch of decisions and it doesn't really matter what decisions we make because God's going to come in at the end, he's going to override them all, and he's going to make it into something good. And people say, I'm much more comfortable with that. I don't like the idea that God is determining every single thing that will happen, but I'm comfortable with the idea that at the end of this thing, he's going to determine the outcome. Dear friends, don't you see then that that means your choices have no consequences? What you want is the God of the universe to say, go do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. Your choices have real consequences. This is the true free will. That you make real choices that you really want with real eternal consequences. And because they have eternal consequences, God says, I will ordain them all. Because that's how much I love you. So. God will use all things at all moments and all ways, including my stupid choices and your stupid choices and every single one of our sins to accomplish his purpose at every moment in your life because that's how much he loves you. So I'm going to show you where this thing gets really hairy because we come back to this morning's text. I told you Annie didn't know what this had to do. She had, must have fallen asleep, fallen asleep at this point. She tells me she sees an outline of a wolf in the side of this. That's what she was doing instead of listening to this. But you gotta cut her some slack. She lives in my house and she hears this stuff all the time. Let me show you why this has to do with this morning's text. Let me show you why that's relevant to this morning's text and everything that we're gonna study, God willing, in the weeks to come. You have all of these people acting sinfully. This is what they all want. They're all following after the desires of their heart. They're Sanhedrin and Judas and Satan, eventually the Jewish people and Pilate and the Roman guards. Everybody's acting of their own volition. They're all acting of their own desires and it's all sin. They're all doing things that God has expressly said, don't do that. Don't betray my son. Don't mock my son. Don't hit and spit in the face and put a fake crown on my son. And don't kill my son. 
He has expressly forbid these very sins. But everything that they do is exactly what Jesus and all the Old Testament prophets said they would do. Right down to the very timing. The Sanhedrin said, we'll kill Jesus anytime other than this week. Guess when they killed him? They did exactly as God had ordained. How many times had Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem that I may be rejected and abused and killed upon a cross, that three days later I will rise again. This must happen. And dear friends, so many people, they turn this and they say, of course, of course, because God knows everything. God knows everything. And he had looked down the corridor of time and he had seen what these evil men would do. He had looked forward in time. He knew the evil that these men would do and he said, I'm gonna make it into something good. A God's just some type of fortune teller, but that's not what he says. Acts 4, what we have here is the church gathering together. Peter and John, they had been in the temple complex. They had healed a man at the gate called Beautiful. They had proclaimed the gospel. The Sanhedrin, the same council had called them in and said, quit doing that. They said, no, we're not. We're gonna keep preaching the gospel. They come back to the church and report everything that had happened. And then, this is the prayer they offer. In the middle of suffering, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of a world turned upside down, this is the prayer they offer. Acts 4.27, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Pilate, sinner, I'm sorry, I got it order, Herod, sinner, Pontius Pilate, sinner, along with the Gentiles, sinners, and the people of Israel, sinners, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Everything, even your sin, Nothing happens outside the will and predestined plan of God. Not the tiniest thing, not the biggest thing, not the best thing, not the worst thing. There is nothing in the entire universe that escapes the will of God. Do you believe that your sin somehow excludes you from the will of God? If I sin enough, I'm outside the will of God. God can't predestine my steps because I'm just going to run around and be the biggest sinner he's ever seen. It says even in this, God is orchestrating, he is ordaining, this is by his plan and his hand. And do you see that this is a comfort to these people? This brings them comfort. This drives them to prayer. So many people say, if you believe that God is truly sovereign like this, you'll never share the gospel. They were fighting for the right to share the gospel. Well, if you believe that God is sovereign like this, you'll never pray. They're praying in times of trouble. Well, if you believe that God is sovereign like this, you'll just be fatalistic and think there's no point in life. They're not fatalistic. They find pure joy and hope in the middle of life and knowing God's sovereign over all of this. Every single moment. This is where their comfort came from. Not fear, not terror, not doubt. That even in this, the most evil act in the history of the world, would you argue elsewise? Look, I, I get it that all sins send men to hell and all sins are infinitely horrible before the infinitely holy God of the universe. But this is the peak, right? The betrayal, the denial, murder of God's own son this is the height of sin and God says my hand and my plan predestined every last moment to happen I didn't just take something bad and use it for good I didn't just take lemons and make it into lemonade they are doing exactly as I predestined what you are witnessing is my providential plan in action and yet it was all sin Every bit of it was sin. Somehow, God is able to predestine. He is able to will and plan and bring to pass the thing that he hates, the thing that he commands against, all for the sake of his glory and our good and never once be the author of sin.
does every single person. Now, these people were forced to do something against their will. Every single person was acting of their own desires, their own volition. No one was forced. That's why Jesus would say of Judas, the son of man goes as it is written of him. This thing's gonna happen the way my father has said, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man to have never been born because Judas wanted this. And Judas is gonna pay for what he's done. He's gonna pay for what springs up from his, from his heart. And yet this is exactly as God is predestined. Please hear me though. Please hear me very clearly. If you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. Because inevitably, somebody's gonna walk out of this place and they're gonna miss this. I'm not calling God a sinner. God has not sinned. God cannot sin. God is infinitely good and righteous and holy and just and true. God is not evil. God does not condone evil. God does not celebrate evil. There's not even a shadow of evil within God. God does not even tempt men to evil. That's what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Sin comes from the hearts of men and God didn't put it there. And yet somehow, this is the great mystery. This is where I'm at the end of myself. And this is when a lot of people go off the track because they demand answers. Pride demands answers. Pride demands to understand how can these two things exist in the same universe? But I'm telling you it's the greatest mystery of all time. That somehow, in light of the fact that these men are doing exactly what their hearts want, that God has ordained the very thing that he commands against. That God can hate a thing and yet guarantee that it will happen. That God can predestine sin to happen without ever sinning himself. That God brings about his predetermined will through the sins of ordinary men without ever committing evil or violence to their will. I don't understand how. I don't understand how this works. Again, we aren't told. We aren't given all the secondary causes. I don't know that I want to know all the secondary causes. I find my hope in this. I don't need to speculate. That's all it is. It's speculation to try and figure out why all the pieces come together. But I cannot deny these twin truths, that God is absolutely and decisively sovereign over every second of every moment of everything, while at the same time, man makes real choices with real consequences, and he will answer for every single one. Not because I want to believe it, and surely not because I want to preach it, because the Bible says it, and it demands that I believe it. So who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, the Sanhedrin and Judas and Pilate and the Roman guards and Satan. They all planned and schemed and desired to do exactly this. God didn't force them into this. This was their will. And yet ultimately, it was God. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of God to crush him. They did all of this according to the sovereign plan of God. He didn't stop them. He could have. We see other places within this story, even with Peter. When he looks to Peter, Jesus, and says, Peter, Satan has, required, has asked permission to sift you, but I've prayed for you that once you fall, you may rise again to lead my people. He's saying, Satan, you may go this far and no further. And Peter, you will fall, but I guarantee you will rise. We see in the life of Job how God restricts the sin, the evil that Satan can do against him, and yet he didn't restrict at this level. He says, these things shall come to pass. I guarantee, I've predestined, I've determined that this evil will happen. And we praise him for this truth because it's only from there that we can be assured that he is truly working all things according to his glory and our good. 
We can be assured that God isn't reacting to anything. He isn't trying to rein in anything. That he's absolutely and totally sovereign over every single second. And here's why that matters. Because you don't have to wait until he gets involved. We don't have to say, well, bad things are happening right now, but someday God's going to get involved and he's going to do some good. No, dear friends, every single moment of your life that comes to pass happens because God has willed it. And he says, this thing happened because there's good that wouldn't come in your life if it didn't happen. This moment, not just the sum of your life, not just the balance of the scales, not just how the story ends. Every single moment. You want to know how you rejoice in suffering? This You don't know how you worship in the middle of suffering? This. You don't know how you find joy while the rest of the world looks at you and thinks you're insane? This. It isn't okay, God allowed some bad stuff, but he's gonna make up for it later. It is in the middle of this bad thing, God is sovereign. God brought it. He's being glorified in ways through this that he wouldn't otherwise. He's doing good for me in this that he wouldn't otherwise, and so I praise him in this. That's why Joseph was able to look to his brothers and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Didn't just use, he meant it for good. He also looked at his brothers and said, you didn't send me to Egypt, it was God. This was his plan to save all of you people. This is why Job could look at his wife and say, will we not receive both good and evil from the hand of God? But it was Satan that was afflicting him. It was Satan that was doing these evil things. It was the raiders that came in and burned down his barns. Yet he knew that it was God. And that's where his hope was found. Because he said, Even if God does not restore my fortunes, I know that this is from the hand of God and I know that he does me good. And I know that this is to his glory. Please see this, church. Please see the hope that is found in this. I had a brother that texted me yesterday as I was standing right here. I was wrestling with these words more than usual and I was standing right here last night and I was wrestling with these words and a brother texted me and he said, I just prayed for you. I said, interesting. Would you mind sharing what you're praying for? And he said, I've just prayed that you may know the grace of God, that you may share that very same grace with your people. Dear friends, this is the grace of God. You deserve nothing. You go after your father, the devil, and he snatches you from that. And he works the most evil, sinful events you've ever had in your life, your own sins. He works for your good. And he works for his glory. So what we have at the cross, it isn't just some incident, it isn't some accident, it isn't some thing out of control, it isn't just some bad men doing something and Jesus saying, I'm going to make something good out of this. It is the single greatest act of divine love in the history of the world. The God of the universe actively pursuing and working for the good of his people. The God of the universe planning from eternity past. This is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before there was a Sanhedrin, before there was a world, God had decreed, this is going to happen. Done deal, I predestined it. All the promises of the Old Covenant, all the promises of the Old Testament, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, all pointing towards this moment that God had ordained. And all of those moments, he preordained them too. All leading to this point. That's why we call this day good. That's why we celebrate in the suffering. That's why we don't wait for God to show up and do something good. We say, even now, even in this, Even if we never understand the good, even in this, he's doing good for me. And I glorify him. All of this to the praise of his glorious grace. So as Jesus falls down on his face before his father in the garden, he cries out, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass through me. His father did not look at him and say, yeah, but I don't dare want to touch on the will of these people. I don't want to touch the hearts of these people. I wouldn't want to impose myself on the hearts of these people. So Jesus, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to wait this one out, but don't worry, I'm going to do something good later. No, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. He said, it's my will to crush you. 
the salvation of the world. I bring this thing to pass. And it's from that place that we can face whatever comes next. I'm afraid that for so much of my life, I've been sitting around waiting for God to do the good. For so much of my life, I've been waiting for God to show up and show me how he's gonna wrap this little sitcom that's called my life together. And I had no joy. I had no hope. I had no true worship in the middle of pain and suffering and things that are legitimately sinful and evil that God hates. But dear friends, once I came to discover this, a light bulb went off and my joy cannot be stopped. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for these people. Father, nobody wants... Normal people don't show up on a Sunday morning and wrestle with such deep truths. Normal people don't want to feel tiny and puny and weak as they stand before you, the sovereign God of the universe. But Father, you have brought a work about in these people's lives and I praise you for that. They praise you for that. And Father, it is from this place as we see you as you are and we see the cross for what it is. Father, we truly seek to worship you. So as we sing these songs now, may they not just be the words of our lips, may they be the meditations of our heart, the very direction of our lives. For our good and to your glory. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dear friends, I do pray that you see I have a question that's before us in light of God's sovereignty is this. What kind of people should we be? The goal at every moment, no matter what stands before us, is how do we honor God in this? I pray you're driven to that. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.